Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 881. Whether you're getting in a race car, going to school, or starting a business, uh, to me, uh, the simplistic approach has been spend enough time as you need to to figure out what you have to do in order to be successful. And then go do that at least or more to get successful. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I'm revved up and so excited to introduce today's very special guest, Dr. Jim Lowe. Hey, Jim. Are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I got a five-point harness on, driver's shoes, and an imaginary helmet. <laughs> there you go. You need to protect that skull, that's for sure, and you would know better than anybody about that. Dr. Jim Lowe is an overachieving yet unassuming, well, I kind of think that might be a little bit of a fib, <laughs> neurosurgeon, adventurer, and family man who spent his life pursuing challenges of personal and professional levels. He has chronicled his experiences in a series of blogs and email recollections that he has woven together into an entertaining book, World's Fastest Neurosurgeon. He earned his degree from Harvard, served 30 years in the Marine Corps. Hoorah! Thank you for your service. And he is a surfer, competitive snowboarder, golfer, a little league coach. What does Jim not do? I don't know. We'll find out. Jim's ultimate athletic aspirations come in the demanding world of top-tier sports car racing, spanning nearly a decade. Jim's run 200-mile-per-hour purpose-built prototype race cars at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the high banks of Daytona International Speedway. You are having fun, my friend. His racing has been a <laughs> lesson in perseverance, chasing dreams, life balance, and setting very high goals. So, Jim, I've told our listeners just a little bit about you. You're a very complex guy. Please take a moment to share a little bit more about your career and an obvious passion for automobiles. Okay. Well, you know, you might call it complex. My wife um, says I'm uh, bizarre, and I just think of it as highly focused. Um, <laughs> so, you know, complex is a probably better described, a better way of describing other guys. Yeah, no, I, I've uh, spent my entire life training to be what I am uh, as a full-time job, which is a neurosurgeon, a spinal surgeon. Uh, so I've been in school forever and uh, stayed in school and continued my education. But somewhere in there... Um, I, I got into cars and that started at an early age and it progressed from being a, uh, a fan sitting with my dad watching the Indy 500 as a little kid. And then sometime after I graduated from med school, I kind of figured that uh, doing some race schools might be cool. I think I saw an ad in the back of Auto Week magazine and thought, oh, this sounds pretty cool. Let's go to, you know, go out to Sonoma. And I went from going to racing school to trying some amateur race series associated with first the Jim Russell school and then Skip Barber. And at Skip Barber, a couple of my buddies uh, came back one, uh, one, one week talking about how they had just done the 24 hours of Daytona as a, at doing a renting a, a Corvette. I think this was back in probably 2004. And I thought, geez, that's the coolest thing. I got to someday, got to someday, maybe somehow. And at that time, I had just developed a relationship with a coach and mentor, a guy named Jim Pace, who's a pretty well-known sports car driver who he himself had won the 24 hours of Daytona back in 96 and won Sebring and very established guy. And he kind of took me under his wing and, and helped coach me. And uh, I started bugging him about Daytona. And next thing you know, we had a ride set up with TRG uh, out in California. Uh -huh. And uh, so my, I went from... I made a jump from 
riding in uh, Skip Barber open wheel cars going about 110 miles an hour to uh, a week later, I was in a Porsche at Daytona on the uh, bank and going 170, uh, wondering what the hell I had done to deserve that. <laughs> so my first ever, actually my first ever lapse in a Porsche of any kind other than a Cayenne truck were at Daytona at practice for the 24 hours of Daytona in 06. <laughs> so, oh man, well this is an example of be careful what you wish for or set your goals because you know what, you might just end up on the base of Daytona. Exactly, exactly. Well, this is a cool story, and that's why I wanted to have you here. I know some of my regular listeners might say, well, wait, why is a neurosurgeon on cars? Yeah, I don't quite understand that. You know, it's interesting because in the last week, I've had two physicians here on the show, so it's really kind of fun that I kind of mix it up a little bit, but uh, this is all about setting goals and pursuing your passion no matter what career you have. So we're going to learn a lot more as we continue on your journey, but first, I always like to ask my guests for a success quote or a mantra. I have a feeling you might have one or two of those, Jim, just from the little bit I know you, but it's a nice way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars, yeah? So take the wheel. Well, I don't know if it's inspirational, but um, I, I have decided to live by the old uh, uh, saying, cliche, call it what you want, uh, the, of uh, if you can't play with the big dog, stay on the porch. <laughs> and that, that sounds kind of macho, but the reality is it's really – I spent um, a childhood and an early adolescence staying on the porch, sitting on the curb, watching kids, watching other people do things. I mean, I, I participated in sports and you know, I, I learned a little bit uh, – well, I learned a lot about myself, but a little bit about how to be part of a team. But I, I very quickly discovered that watching was interesting. But if you if you have a chance to join in, you know, life's much better when you do that. And um, that's how I ended up in Daytona in a GT Porsche car and later in a prototype going 200 miles an hour with uh, running against Dario Franchitti and, uh, you know, the, those guys and Alan McNish. So there's nothing wrong with staying on the porch. There's times when I have still to this day. But the, otherwise, um, the, the reality is I, I really joining in and, and being part of it rather than a spectator is, uh, is to be highly um, desired. Well, let me ask you this, because, I mean, you spent time in the Marine Corps. Thank you for your service there. My heart goes out to the Marine Corps. My father-in-law was a 33-year Marine. Fantastic guy. The Marines are the first in, the last out, man. They're, the, they're not on the porch. They don't sit on any porches unless they're taking over a porch somehow. Or And then, you know, you're a surfer, a snowboarder. I mean, all these things you've decided to involve yourself in. Let me just ask you this, because you're around... A surgeon's forum here. You know, you're in the operating room. You're you're caring for people. Sometimes, perhaps, people that are in life or death situations. Is there something looking back in your life that kind of has pushed you to, you know, what? Get off the porch. Get involved in things because this precious thing we call life is is very precious. Well, th th there's two aspects of that. The, the getting involved part purely was. Um uh, self-preservation for me. Uh, I, I was, um, I found that I was easily uh, unhappy, or depressed, sad, call it what you want, when I was not involved. And I, whatever my personality is, and you know, whether it's uh, some element of uh, hyperactive or whatever they call it these days, I, I'm not a good sit around, do nothing kind of guy, unless I can plan that. I, I do like to read a good book on a weekend. But, um, you know, if it, I'm, I, I, I'm not happy unless I'm doing something. And uh, as my wife says, you know, you, you kind of have to be juggling lots of things all at once. And usually my only concept is trying not to drop too many balls, but <laughs> I like to be juggling. So the issue of doing odd things, whether it's um, 
crawling through the swamp of Virginia with an M16 uh, or, or, you know, surfing or whatever, these kind of things. That's to me is more of calculated risk, just like sports car racing is, Mm -hmm. you know, for the life of me, you would never let me, I would never get in an Indy car. I think they're too dangerous, too fast. And, you know, I'm not qualified and uh, nor will I ever, would I ever be, but certain kinds of cars, certain kinds of circumstances, being on a racetrack with other professionals, um, I felt entirely comfortable and, and not nervous. I, I didn't fear for my safety. So these mm-hmm. are calculated risks, you know, and the payoff in terms of how I felt and how I enjoyed it and how, what a different person it made me was well worth it. So it's all about, you know, how much risk is acceptable and how much risk is reasonable. And in reality, I always, I, I do still believe to this day that my drive to and from the racetrack was always more dangerous than the drive on it. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I understand. I understand. No, very well put. And I appreciate you taking us into a little personality trait there with you because calculated risk. Yeah, in, indeed. Uh, but still uh, just putting yourself out there and getting involved to me, that's the golden nugget part of this because uh, this time we have on this planet is very, very short. Well, you talked about sitting in the stands watching the Indy 500 with your dad. Let's go back in time and have you share a story that instigated your passion for cars. Is there a pivotal moment as you remember it when you realize that you were indeed a car guy? Well, there was a couple. And, and my dad, who, um, you know, he was, my dad worked on cars every day of his life because we never, when I was a kid, we never could afford a new car. I never saw a new car in my house in the entire time that uh, I was living at home uh, as a kid. So my dad would come home from work, um, working all day. He was a typical, uh, you know, typical grunt. He worked all day and he'd come home and uh, get under the cars after dinner and start trying to fix the cars so they were running the next day. So the inspiration for me was just that cars were living, breathing physical thing that you could you could interact with. That being said, I was terrible at it because my dad did the work and you know I was good at assisting him but not doing anything else. So back then you only had if you remember very little few racing things you could watch. I mean you could you know there was a wide world of sports and you know the Indy 500 and Monaco was on the, you know the sort of uh, the same day and they would broadcast little pieces of it. I don't even remember even watching NASCAR on TV back then. I remember the Indy 500 and yeah. Monaco. So, you know, my heroes growing up were those guys uh, who raced at Indy. And then, um, you know, I remember uh, seeing some really bad accidents back then. I can't remember which year, the first year that uh, on the, the start of starting lap of the Indy 500, uh, you know, that basically was a horrible, horrible wreck. And I, I don't remember if Sneva got um, killed and or one of these guys, there's lots of bad things happened all at once. And I remember uh, my dad sort of saying, well, you know, <laughs> those guys, those guys, they're, they're, you know, they're not, they're not necessarily heroes. They might be crazy, but you know, they're like gladiators, you know, they, right. they, they know they're going to, they know a bunch of them are not going to live through the season or their career or whatever. And, um, it wasn't necessarily an inspiration for me to be a doctor or a racer, but they, it sort of tied things in, you know, there's safety issues were always curious to me. Mm-hmm. And then they became very important to me when I started racing and racing professionally and realizing that, you know, Boy, thank God that guys like Jackie Stewart went before me and, and insisted on racing being safer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I got to I got to survive eight years of racing professionally. That was a that was a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You look at some of the uh, the speed that cars travel these days, and then accidents, and guys crawl out of the car and walk away, and there's nothing left of the car, especially Formula One type cars, but NASCAR as well. Sure. That gives us a little hint of your start, but let's move forward a little bit and talk about a big challenge or a big failure that you face along the way, sometime in your life, your career, something that occurred that really pushed you up against the wall and caused you to reach deep. Take us there, kind of walk us through it, and then tell us how that experience helped you gain even more momentum moving forward. 
So um, well, one of the most obvious and glaring and public failures and challenges was um, my first 24 hours of Daytona race in 2006. So as I mentioned, I had only thus far driven in Skip Barber cars, which are great, great fun and uh, great racing, but mm-hmm. a whole different animal. And I showed up in January at Daytona in 2006 with a group of TRG was running five Porsches probably at the time. And uh, I was all of a sudden teammates with a bunch of other uh, two other guys, Jim Pace and a good friend, guy named Revere Greist. So we ran three of us in the car that uh, that for that race and made it through um, the testing, the qualifying. I kind of got up to speed, but still, quite honestly, I was probably not at the fast end. Let's say not at the sharp end of the grid, but we were just there just to compete, just to try and it was sort of a one-off thing. I had raised um, a lot of money uh, with a lot of sponsors locally, you know, a jeweler from, uh, you know, different other got his friends together. They all contributed money. And so it was sort of a big deal and it was supposed to be a one-off, one-time race. And uh, uh, Jim Pace started the race in our car, got us running and we were, you know, competitive in the GT class. And, and there I am uh, waiting to get in the car. I get in the car and a half hour into my stint going through the uh, the left-right sequence right after turn one, the car, uh, I got the, got loose and spun it around and ran it into the guardrail and wrecked the car pretty badly. Oh, no. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, that's how I thought. Yep. Yeah. And, and you know, right in front of like dozens of friends and family who came down, my wife uh, was watching, but unfortunately, uh, fortunately, didn't see it wreck. And uh, thankfully, I wrecked. Uh, f- thankfully, personally, I didn't. I wrecked uh, the hit the guardrail at the rear of the car, uh, but bent the frame, damaged things, and uh, limped it back home. And here I am, my first ever Daytona, my first stint ever. Thirty minutes into it, and I wrecked the whole yeah, race. Yeah. Ugh. So yeah, it was. Um, it was. When I tell you, it was a crushing, uh, a crushing blow. And Jim Pace stepped forward, talked to uh, Kevin Bucker, the head of TRG and the mechanics, and said, let's put it back together and let's keep going. Wow. And they spent about four hours putting it back together, putting the car. And they, they got the car back together and got it running and sent uh, Revere out. My other co-driver hadn't driven yet the whole uh, race. Yeah. And we went on and we continued to lap through the night and we finished the race. Awesome. So that was an amazing finish to after, you know, me trying our hardest to not finish. Yeah. It was a uh, certainly a bittersweet memory of doing that. But during that race, while we were sitting around while they're fixing the car, Jim Pace looked at me and said, um, well, you realize now we got to keep racing. We got to keep doing this. We got to keep trying. <laughs> yeah. You can't let this be your only time. Yep. And I, you know, I, I love him for that because if he had said, listen, you know, you're not cut out for this. Yeah. If he said, you know, you're not cut out, then forget it. But instead, um, before we were even done that race, we we're making plans to do more. Wow. And, you know, we went on and uh, uh, made a deal with uh, TRG to do, I think, five more races that season. Um, we finished as high as uh, sixth place at Watkins Glen. We had three more top tens for the rest of the season. And then um, I bought a car, a Porsche, and ran the 2007 race, and we came in third. Wow. And so a year later, <laughs> after a year after wrecking my car at uh, Daytona, we were standing on the podium spraying champagne. And wow. That was one of the top point days of my life. So Yeah. Well, there's that perseverance word that comes into play. And thankfully, you had Jim in your life there to kind of give you a perspective on what uh, where you needed to go from there, because I could see how a defeat like that, if you call that a defeat or a big challenge, let's call it that, because it wasn't defeat. I mean, you had a great team. You got back on the track, and that's a testament to racing and what racing is all about. You can't quit. Wow, what a story. Well, that's cool. Well, let's shift gears and go to the other end of the spectrum. Sure. I'd love for you to share what I call a career aha moment. It's one of those times where the lights come on and kind of illuminate the right path for you to head down 
Tell us one of yours. Well, um, that's probably more relevant to things like medicine. Mm-hmm. And, um, and frankly, it's, it gets a little bit away from cars. Cars are, and racing to me has been the aha moments are, you know, quite frankly, every time I got in a race car, I was wondering whether I was supposed to be there or not. And, you know, again, some of the, you know, some of the so-called big dogs, like we said, that I was uh, racing against really made me question my sanity and whether or not anybody was kind of checking the, uh, the credentials before I got in a race car. So <laughs> yeah. the, the, the aha moments there were more like, ah, you know, yeah. <laughs> more frightening than anything. Sure. But the, the medicine, and aha moments were um, surviving through med school and getting into a training program and and realizing like, okay, now the aha moment is I have a clear path and if I just keep putting one foot in front of the other and get through this clear path, I will eventually get to do what I've always wanted to do, which was be a surgeon, be a neurosurgeon. And that it's not one seminal moment. It's not one exact moment, but it's more sequence of, yeah, I can do this and they're going to let me do this <laughs> as long as I get properly trained and learn how to do it. And at no point did I have people say to me, you can't do this or you shouldn't do this. I got reinforcement that you're you know, you're capable of doing this. So, so career wise and what I ultimately really was expected to do, destined to do whatever the words are, you know, mm-hmm. uh, 24 years into my career, the reason I'm doing this is because I, somebody allowed me to continue on that path of training and, and doing it. So that's the critical thing when it comes to things like uh, career choices and successes. No doubt a lot of patients are happy that uh, you took those steps as well. Let's talk about a proudest career moment. Moment, Nice little segue there. I would assume you've had many because you've healed a lot of people. You've helped a lot of people. And, of course, you talked about standing on that podium, spraying champagne. Now, that's a pretty proud moment, too. But is there one different, maybe, that you could share with us? Well, um yeah, I, uh, there's there's one in racing, and then there's just a multiple ones I thought of uh, from medicine. So I'll do the racing one first. So racing uh, at Indy in 2012, Indianapolis. It was the first time Grand Am had gone there. And we were the same weekend there running the NASCAR guys. So at the time, I was uh, partnered in a prototype with the Doran team out of Ohio. We were in a Daytona prototype, and Paul Tracy was my partner. Wow, cool. (laughs) So I I get to go to Indy with Paul Tracy, right? (laughs) You know, he and I are driving. Pinch me, (laughs) pinch me. Right, exactly. And and you've got to remember, Indy is like where when I was a little kid, you know, watching races at Indy. And now I'm going to get the race at, you know, almost 200 miles an hour myself at, at Indy with a guy like Paul Tracy. And Paul Tracy uh, first takes me through the Indy Medical Center and introduces me to the medical team and uh, shows me that, gave me gave me a little tour, which was great. And then we go and uh, we, we get ready to go racing. And on the day of the race, long story short, Paul and I were both trying to relax in the trailer, taking a little nap, uh, well, you know, before the race started and uh, it starts pouring rain. Uh-oh. My manager comes in and the, the team owner comes in and says to me, uh, you ever driven a prototype in the rain? And I said, no, nah, I've never been in the rain in a prototype before. It's going to be uh, interesting. I said, well, at least I got Paul here. And Paul kind of wakes up, opens an eye and goes, I've never been in a prototype in the rain either. <laughs> oh, great. That's when the team owner rolls his eyes and walks out the door. <laughs> exactly. And I was starting the race. I had qualified the car early in the day and I was starting the race and I was um, not last. I was actually in front of Scott Dixon. Wow. Holy cow. <laughs> well, not, not, not out of qualifying, but I, who knows what happened to them in yeah. qualifying. But, but nonetheless, I was directly in front of Scott Dixon wow. on the start at Indy in the rain. Oh, my goodness. So, uh, so we're doing makes- our warm up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can imagine. Uh, so here, my thoughts as I'm driving around Indianapolis were, number one, how great is this to be driving in Indy? You know, and uh, it, finally, after years of trying this, trying that, doing different things, having various successes and 
number one. Number two, I was thinking about my dad because I think how cool that was to, you know, couldn't wait to uh, see if he was wa- actually watching. And then lastly, the third part was, boy, Scott Dixon's going to kick my butt in, in about 30 <laughs> seconds here. And uh, the guys are on the radio and the, from the team going, hey, just want to remind you that's Scott Dixon behind you. And of course, I'm messing with them going, who? Never heard of him. I don't yeah. have no idea who he is. Right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, and uh, we come around the front straight. And of course, you know what happens in cars when you start a race, when you know, people accelerate and it's in the rain is yeah. all you see is a, it's like a giant cloud mist. You can't see anything. anything. Right. Woo. And all, I'm, I'm just going down towards the first turn and I'm looking for the green lights on the uh, fence so I know where to turn. And as I see the last green light start to turn in, there goes scott dixon right by me yeah yeah he knew what he was doing (laughs) i'm like well that was uh that was the end of the whole scott dixon experience Um, anyway so long story short we did very well that day and actually we had a shot at uh running out front uh, for a while there not with 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 paul in the car but i survived racing in the rain i didn't wreck the car and i uh survived the race and we finished sixth and i looked at the end of the when i saw the rebroadcast of all the names we were running with and uh, who we had finished around and i thought you know that's a pretty good day to yeah. be racing cars oh, yeah. uh, for, you know, a, a dumb old spine surgeon, you know. <laughs> um, so that was a, that was a, a wonderful uh, racing career moment that of which I'm very proud, uh, uh, obviously. No doubt. Well-deserved. The medical things are far, far less descriptive and but far more important to me. And um, it, you, you, might, you may or may not be surprised, but not every patient is always uh, expressive of being thanks, thankful or, you know, mm-hmm. and truly when I get heartfelt thanks from a patient, it means the world to me because it doesn't happen all the time. And when it does, uh, people are generally, um, they're, they're very genuine about it because you, you may in some fashion help them. Maybe it's just an issue of pain. Maybe, you, you know, put them back together after they broke their neck. But little bits of thanks are absolutely still to this day, 24 years into practice after 20 years of school or something, right? Whatever it's been, you know, still the, the single best part about doing what I do. No doubt. Well, an attitude of gratitude, as my mother taught me, is something worth having. And boy, you can uh, make somebody's day in life by being just a little bit grateful or a lot grateful, no matter what they did to you. So very nice. Well, let's go back in time and talk about your first really special car. Maybe this was the first time you got in a race car. Maybe it was a car you got as a kid, but something that was really special for you, you'd worked really hard towards. And maybe share a memory about that vehicle with us. Well, I think it's the best thing I can tell you about my the most memorable early car was a 72 Opal I had when I was in high school. Now, this was a a POS, excuse the expression. It was a <laughs> it was a green, ugly, you know, rusted out, uh, you know, car. So this is I was in high school, a senior in high school. It was probably 1980, and this was 72. But it was it was certainly certainly a beat up car. And uh, in fact, I think it belonged to my sister or something. And I got to drive it occasionally. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was fond of breaking down. The clutch would go. All sorts of things would happen to it. But uh, one particular day, I love the uh, the memory of being with my brother, who was a freshman in high school at that time. So I'm probably 17 and he's, you know, 14. And we're coming home from church this Sunday morning. I got an eight track player in it that I had just put in the thing. And <laughs> yeah. So I got, I'm listening to the Beach Boys for, I don't know, what if, for whatever reason, I got the Beach Boys on and we got the windows down. It's a beautiful day and, we got on the, and we're blasting the music and we go driving down one of the streets right past the two really cute girls from the high school. And we kind of wave and they wave at us and we're playing the music loud and about a, two blocks later, the car breaks down. Of course. <laughs> and it just stops running at the stop sign. And so, of course, I get make my little brother, since he's a little brother, get out and push. 
And so we still got the Beach Boys playing. And a couple minutes later, the same two girls go walking, <laughs> walking by us. By. I'm sitting at the steering wheel and my brother's pushing me. And the car is uh, – we're just pushing along and they go past us. You know, They're going faster than we are, but we're waving again. I'm thinking, oh, that's really great. We're impressing the high school oh, yeah. girl. Yeah, I'm car. sure they so, thought that was all a big front just so that they could catch up and you could say hello. So, But I love that car. That was, car was uh, you know first car that I, I felt good about driving because everything up to that point had been things like Dodge Darts and uh, Chryslers. So Now, you said – Opal, 72 Opal? I think it was 72. It might have been a 71. It was a pretty old. What uh, model was that Opal? Was it like a Cadet or a Opal GT? Or? No, it was, it was not the nice GT. It was, a, I think it was a Cadet. It was really, like I said, it was not the high end of the Opals. It was definitely the, the end of the range where they had a, not a very good clutch. It was the first stick shift I ever had. That was a, that was fun, you know. It looked sporty to me, but it was um, in retrospect, it was not the uh, the fancy GT ones that people yeah. collect. <laughs> yeah, I had a good friend back in high school, and then college, who had an Opal GT, and uh, we used to. In fact, he went into the military uh, after college, and uh, loved that car. It's just a fun little unique car, a really different kind of car because that European body, but the American engine under the hood. So, uh, yeah, neat little cars. I remember I liked the way the headlights opened. They didn't open like front and forward; they rotated, like rolled they rotated. over. They flipped yeah, over. Flipped yeah. over to come yep. up. So very, very cool. Well, how about a car that you let go? Do you have a seller's remorse story? Yeah, it's not uh, – I didn't sell it though to be specific. Now, I thought about uh, uh, this concept, which was I, I had the good fortune back in 2004. I guess I had a Ferrari Stradale, a 360 Stradale. Oh, the nice. first for, first Ferrari I ever had, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, ridiculous expenditure, but I loved it <laughs> dearly. And I drove it very rarely because – more because of the circumstance of there's nowhere to drive a Ferrari Stradale around uh, my neighborhood. But um, – I had uh, uh, joined the New Jersey Motorsports Park, the new brand new racetrack mm-hmm. in New Jersey. And the Grand Am team, uh, the Grand Am series was running there when the track opened in 2008. So local Porsche dealer, a um, guy named Bob DeStanislo is a great guy. Porsche dealership is Porsche, the main line where I, where I live. And he sponsored my race team. And uh, we were running two Porsches at the Grand Am event to open the racetrack in uh, August, the end of August. Well, beginning of August, they opened the track for the people who joined the racing club there, you know. So the, the very first day the track opened, I figured, what a better, what great way to celebrate our sponsorship with Porsche, the main line. I, I called Bob. I said, let's go race my Ferrari down at the you know, New Jersey. And, uh, he says, ah, sounds like a great idea. You know, I said, well, no problem. They said, just, yeah, when we go drive it, you know, if you drive it, you have to bring it back into condition. You, you got it. Standard swap rules. Right. So I, I went, went there. I went first. I took him for some laps to get him used to, you know, the kind of how the car was handling through the turns and where the line was and things like that. And then, uh, talked a friend of mine, another professional driver, into taking Bob out while Bob drove, since I can't sit in the right seat. I, I'm just, <laughs> I'm, I'm either too smart or too scared about that, but either way, I won't sit in the right seat in the race car. So uh, my buddy, Tommy, uh, the race car driver, goes with uh, Bob, and, and um, while I'm in the garage chatting with people, people come running up to me and say, Bob just wrecked your Ferrari. Oh, no. And I said, uh, oh, really? Very funny. They said, no, no, he's right out there in the front straight. He wrecked the Ferrari. Oh, so here comes Bob walking back with his helmet in hand, which is always a bad sign. Right? Yes. And, and of course, I was very worried that he was okay. Thank God he was fine and Tommy was fine. I, and, and Bob says, oh, I am really sorry. And I said to Tommy, what happened? And you know, Tommy says, I don't know. Everything was great until it wasn't. Yeah, until it wasn't. <laughs> There's a quote. So, uh, <laughs> but he basically you know, destroyed the car, took four corners off the car and wrecked it. And that's the last I ever saw the car. It Ooh. stayed there. And uh, Bob said, you know, I'll, uh, I took his car home. 
And he said, look, I'll, um, I'll buy the car from you. And uh, the next thing you know, he, he took the car and he gave me the option of buying it back, you know, getting it back when it was repaired, but it took over a year to fix the thing. And yeah. after that, I, I kind of figured I'd do whatever else I was off with doing more racing. And I never got the car back and I never bothered with it. But to this day, I regret not taking the car back and getting it fixed because I love the car and it was an amazing car. And it's still a very rare one, one yeah. year they uh, made the car. So, oh, yeah. That was my, that's my remorse of, uh, oh. it but it wasn't exactly buyer. I didn't exactly sell it, uh, but I, um, <laughs> Cra- crashers remorse. Well, you know, it, yeah, sad story. And that's always the danger when you toss your keys to somebody that something like that could happen. And I know those cars well, because I have a very good friend, Bill, who's a neurosurgeon here in the Pacific Northwest. who we raced together and he bought one of those when they came out. And I'll still remember the day he came by my office and let me take it for a drive. And yeah, it's just a streetcar race car. I mean, it's just a sure. wonderful car in so many ways. Uh, I think he only had that car for a couple of years. I think his brother ended up buying it. So um, it went away, but he's had plenty of fun cars ever since. Shout out to Bill. Well, let's talk about this book that you wrote, because as if uh, doing all this stuff you're doing on top of uh, being a spine surgeon isn't enough, you decided to write a book, World's Fastest Neurosurgeon. So what prompted that project? Well, the, 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 so many people asked how, how I got into racing and what, uh, what, you know, what compelled me to do something so foolish as to drive around the racetrack and, uh, you know, compete against, uh, you know, pretty serious guys who, who race for groceries. And, um, I, I got so used to answering that question and answered it in so many ways and started uh, realizing that there's a narrative there somewhere that, uh, starts when I was a little kid and, and, you know, uh, continues, uh, to some degree to this day. Uh huh. So I, uh, I, I started um, thinking about trying to put it in some sort of order that made sense, like so I could actually explain it, uh, you know, on a el- two-minute elevator ride. In the meantime, I also, when I was racing, I was doing a blog to write to friends who, you know, would subscribe to this uh, email list. And next thing you know, there's a lot of people on that list. And, uh, you know, every, every time I was in testing, every time I was at a race, I would do a little write-up about how it went. And uh, that got a lot of traction. I figured, well, there's kind of the background of a book in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. So I decided to put it all together, and uh, uh, that, uh, that's how it came to be. But it probably took uh, five or six years to, <laughs> to write the darn thing um, and even more time to get it uh, finally uh, uh, set and published. So. Yeah, yeah. Now, is the book available now? Can people buy a copy? It is. It's uh, World's Fastest Neurosurgeon available through Amazon and also on Kindle. Uh, so cool. you can do either form. And uh, people are asking about audio books. Uh, if they call me, I'll gladly read it to them. Um, <laughs> there you <so>. go. <laughs> there you go. That'll be your return appearance here on Cars. Yeah, we'll have you read your book to us. I'll make sure I let our listeners know that on Jim's show notes page on the Cars Yeah website, I'll put a link to that Amazon account where you can get your hands on this very cool book. I think it's great that you documented this experience, especially given that your profession is different than your avocation and that you let people know what this is all about. Because for a lot of people, racing is this mystery thing. And well, Jim, here's a very introspective question for you. If Jim was a car, what kind of car would Jim be and why? So uh, uh, Jim would be a, a mid-80s Porsche slant nose. Okay, okay. Not be- just because I have a big nose. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I think um, when I thought about this, and then maybe, it's, maybe I'm actually thinking too much of myself to say Porsche because I really do actually admire uh, Porsches. But I was thinking more in a self-deprecating fashion because I think you know I, I can be relied upon much of the time but not all the time. 
<laughs> um, I'm generally fast, but not necessarily as uh, as uh, flashy or uh, sexy as a Lamborghini or a Ferrari. And uh, somewhere out there, somebody like my wife wants me. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, overall, I think that, uh, you know, it's not necessarily appealing to everybody. So I like that. And not, not to mention the fact that you probably back in the day couldn't commute in it and race it. So it's got a little bit of a two sides to it. So I thought that would be a kind of a reasonable yeah. uh, thought of where I'd fit in. Very well thought through. I like that very much. Great answer. Well, Jim, up next is the last lap. But before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's Cars yeah! sponsors. What's every automotive enthusiast's dream? To design and build that perfect garage. My friends at Metron Garage are a group of creative talents who've combined their passion for cars with their careers in architecture. Their service includes unique garage design and state-of-the-art fabrication. They will create the coolest custom garage for you in your vehicles. Metron Garage's system features fully engineered commercial grade material and structural framing that's stronger than traditional construction. Their designs are pre-engineered to meet your building codes for fast, bolt-together construction. With over 25 years of experience, you'll see a 3D rendering to visualize your custom garage and the final structure will fulfill all your storage needs. Contact Metron Garage today and begin realizing your dream garage. Go to metrongarage.com. That's metrongarage.com. Garage is built for discerning enthusiasts. Where it's not just a garage, it's where your dream garage comes true. Everyone who knows me knows I'm really picky when it comes to my cars and keeping them looking new. I'm a huge fan of Covercraft floor mats. I've protected my vehicle with their products for decades. Want to keep your vehicle's interior looking new? It's easy with Covercraft floor mats. They will protect your vehicle's factory carpets from daily abuse, weather, pets, children, weekend adventures, and those everyday spills. It's a fast, easy, and stylish way to keep your vehicle looking new. Covercraft floor mats come in a wide variety of styles, materials, and configurations, all designed for maximum protection. In addition to Premier Plush and Berber Custom Floor Mats, you'll also find cargo liners, canine cargo area liners, dash covers, and sunscreens. Enhance your vehicle's looks while protecting the factory finishes with easy-to-install and easy-to-clean floor mats. Covercraft is the right choice. Learn more today at Covercraft.com and tell them Mark at Cars Yeah sent you. That's Covercraft.com. Okay, Jim, we are back, and we're entering the last lap. You know what that means. You've been on plenty of tracks. The white flag's out. Time to put our foot into it. I'm going to read off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So here we go. What's the best automotive advice or racing advice you've ever received? Uh, first time I got in a, a GT Porsche race car with Jim Pace, he told me, don't touch anything red or dusty. <laughs> That's a great one. I've never heard that. I like that. Would you share one of your personal habits you believe has helped contribute to your successes over the years? Simple. Get out of bed and go do what you have to do no matter what you feel like. <laughs> get off the porch. Definitely. Yes. Or get out of bed. And make your bed. If you're a Marine, make your bed. That's important too. Do you have a resource you'd like to share with our listeners? Uh, maybe. Well, I guess my book is a resource. Uh, yep. and, you know, maybe that's, again, thinking too much of it. But uh, hopefully it's a little bit of a how to in addition to a good story. There you go. Now, if I could arrange for you to have a drink with anyone in the automotive field, living or deceased, who would that person be? Oh, no doubt about it. Jimmy Clark. Ah, yeah. Wouldn't that yeah, be cool? My hero. My hero from when I was a kid. 
That would be cool. Absolutely. Now, we talked about books. We talked about your book. But is there another book you might recommend to our listeners that you've enjoyed reading? Well, um, I'll tell you what. There's a great book that's um, for no other reason than it's an interesting topic and well written. It's called Le Mans 55, and it's about the uh, the, the crash of the, in 1955 that killed over 100 spectators at the uh, 24 Hours of Le Mans. And um, I'm I'm blanking. I'm looking up my uh, bookcase now as we look at it. I don't have the author's name right in front of me, but it's a phenomenal book. I think that was Christopher Hilton was the writer. Oh, author, yeah, there you go. Author of that yep. book. Yeah, I, yeah, that's a great book. But a couple other past guests have recommended that book here on the show. But uh, it, it is a great book to have. If you enjoy racing, definitely something to have on your shelf. Well, listeners, I'll remind you, you can find all these great resources Jim has been so kind to share today on his Cars Yeah show notes page. You can go there, click on all the links, and there's another great place called Guest Recommended Books where I put on the website where you can click and find Jim's book and this book about the Le Mans 55 and all the other past 800 and, let's see, 80 guests I've had here on the show. A lot of people I've talked to in the last three and a half years. I've made it real easy for you to click and buy a lot of great resources there. All right, Jim, we're up to the checkered flag. And this last question can be a bit of a doozy. All right. Today, I'm buying you any cool collector car in the world doesn't matter what it costs. What would that car be? And more importantly, why? Well, is it cheating if I already have it? No, of course not. I've had plenty of guests that have been fortunate enough to have their dream car. So what is that car? It's in my basement now, and it's a, it's my 2007 Porsche GT3 Cup car that we Ooh. came in third at Daytona in. I had it redone in its original livery and the colors and the names of my co-drivers, uh, Jim Pace and uh, Ralph Kellners and Johannes Van Overbeek. Wow. And um, it's sitting in my garage. It's it's still on a charger, believe it or not. But I'll, I don't know if I'll ever take it out because uh, yeah, I don't want it to crash. It. Uh, you know, I want it to be in the in the condition it is, which is phenomenal. Maybe someday we'll vintage race it together. Yeah, um, yeah. But uh, that's my uh, my dream car is uh, already sitting down there, and uh, I go down a couple times a week and pat it. Uh, you know, you're very fortunate because I've talked to a lot of people who wish they had their first race car or a significant race car in their racing career, and I've had hundreds of race cars drivers here on the show. You're very smart to do that because a lot of the times people, well, they either can't do it because they've got to sell a car to move to the next car or whatever, or sure. they just <laughs> yeah. they, they just don't think that first car is going to have a lot of meaning until later in life when they look back on their career and say, wow, look, look what I was able to do. So very smart, very wise, and very fortunate. And I'm really happy because I don't have to buy you a car today. Considering just a few days ago, somebody wanted, I think it was yesterday's guest, wanted a GTO Ferrari, a 62, which would break break the bank, that's for sure. Break a a couple banks. But uh, I'm really happy you have that car. I hope someday you do take it out again, even if it's just for some spirited laps. Uh, Remember what I was told when I started vintage racing, the throttle goes both ways. So you don't have to have it pushed (laughs) all the way down all the time. So you can be careful. But uh, It's not an on or off pedal. No, it's not. I've heard that one too. Well, Jim, you've taken me on an awesome ride today. I've really enjoyed getting to know you a little bit better, and I want to thank you for sharing your automotive journey with me and the Cars Yow listeners. Could you offer us one little parting piece of wisdom or guidance before you rip off down the track in that Porsche GT3 Cup car? Yeah, it, it sounds self-evident, but whether you're getting in a race car or going to school or starting a business, uh, to me, the, the simplistic approach has been spend enough time as you need to to figure out what you have to do in order to be successful. And then go do that at least or more 
to get successful. And, you know, I, I know I, every time I say that to anybody, it sounds a little like Steve Martin's old joke about, you know, how to be a millionaire. First, you get a million dollars, right? Yeah. You know, but the, <laughs> but, the, but the reality is too few people, I think, think about what it's going to take to get to where they want to get. Yep. And um, Jim Pace helped me with that when it came to racing. Mentors I've had helped me with that when it came through time through med school and, and my education, my training. And even now, you know, people like my partner, Joe Zerbo, helped me with that. But if you have no idea what it's going to take to get there, it's very hard to get there. So I'm a big fan of figuring it out ahead of time and then setting that goal and then doing whatever it takes to be there. Well, you know, there's some interesting correlations here. If you go back to your time in the Marine Corps, obviously in the military, if you're going to go in and do something, you plan. You don't just go in and hope it works out. <laughs> and many, many of my friends and past guests here on Cars Yahoo who are racers have said, a race is usually won before you get to the track, and that is in the planning process. So uh, life is that way, too. So very wise sure. words of wisdom from a very wise a guy. Wise guy. Maybe I should wise rephrase guy. that. Yeah. How about a very smart man? That sounds a little bit nicer. What's the best way for our listeners to follow along with uh, you? Do you still have a blog? Do you talk about your racing? Well, we're going to resurrect the blog as the book is launched. Um, so we have a website for the book, which is uh, just under the world's fastest neurosurgeon. So we, we have, we're going to try and keep that, uh, that blog a little bit more fresh as uh, things become relevant and as we announce things like you know, book signings and things and see if we can promote that a little bit. And uh, I'm hoping that'll uh, lead me to uh, want to write another one, which means I've got to go back and do some more racing. Oh, well, gee, I'm sorry. You might just have <laughs> to do that, but that's pretty cool. Well, you know what, listeners, guess what? One of you lucky listeners today, a Cars Yeah subscriber to my website, is going to win a copy of The World's Fastest Neurosurgeon. Compliments of Jim Lowe. So make sure you go to the Cars Yeah website, click on the free book button. I'll send you my free book, The Filler Up Book, and your name will be in the hat. And one lucky person out there is going to win a copy of this book of Compliments of Jim. So very nice of you to do that today. And listeners, again, you can find links to everything Jim has shared today on his show notes page on the Cars yeah website. Just type Jim or Jim Alo, L-O-W-E, into the search bar, and that page will pop right up. Hey, Jim, thanks for being so generous today with your time and expertise and for sharing. Oh, uh, thank you. Sharing all of your amazing experiences with the Cars yeah listeners. Until you and I talk again, I'll see you down the road. Thank you so much. Great fun. It was my pleasure. If you own collector cars and still have a little bit of money left over, congratulations. You're ahead of most people, but what should you do with the money you don't spend on cars? Talk to Chris Kimball, Certified Financial Planner Practitioner. For over 20 years, he's been helping people just like you and me with their financial planning and investments. And he's a car guy, too. Call 253-722-PLAN. Or you can view his website at www.chrisvkimble.com. Make sure your investments are running on all eight cylinders, or 12, or 16. Securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. Member, Finra Sipic. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah! Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!